Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, December 29th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The U.S. Supreme Court temporarily halts the termination of Title 42. The United Nations says the number of civilians killed in Ukraine is likely much higher than known. India investigates the death of a Russian politician. Ethiopian Airlines resumes flights to Tigray. A U.S. judge denies a request to sanction Arizona's Cary Lake. 40% of junior doctors in the U.K. plan to quit the national health system. The U.N. calls for the Taliban to reverse restrictions on women. Spain announces a $10 billion aid package amid inflation. Hong Kong is set to scrap almost all its COVID rules. And Novak Djokovic returns to Australia. Topping our news today, the Supreme Court temporarily halts termination of Title 42. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Fox News, CNN, Daily Wire, and BBC News. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court rendered a decision to temporarily keep Title 42 in place, a section of the U.S. Code allowing the government to prevent foreigners from entering the country if they present a threat of spreading communicable diseases. Title 42 was authorized in March 2020 by former President Donald Trump at the onset of the COVID pandemic and allows immigration officials to quickly expel migrants in the name of public health. In November, a federal district judge vacated the policy. The decision was quickly appealed by Republican-led states, leading Chief Justice John Roberts to pause Title 42's termination last week. In a 5-4 decision, Justices Roberts, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett agreed to hear a challenge from the Republican-led states during the February 2023 argument session. Customs and Border Protection officials warned that approximately 50,000 foreigners were to cross the border once Title 42 ended, and governmental officials in border towns have declared states of emergency in anticipation of the Supreme Court's decision. President Joe Biden says that his administration will comply with the ruling and continue to enforce the policy, but called for comprehensive immigration reform. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts. Here on Improve the News, we separate the narrative spin from the facts. We have a Republican narrative for this politically motivated story, and it's brought to us by conservativebrief.com. The government's primary duty is to protect and put its citizens first, while Biden and other Democrats want to dismantle any border protection that still exists. Republican border states that face the brunt force of the nation's immigration crisis can't allow open borders without a fight. The U.S. has millions of people entering illegally every year, and it isn't sustainable. And the Democratic narrative is courtesy of ACLU.org. Title 42 was placed into effect as a short-term public health measure to protect against COVID, not as immigration law. That it's still in place reveals what it really is, a racist Trump-era policy that denies migrants the right to seek asylum under the guise of public health. Thousands of legitimate asylum seekers are suffering. It's time this inhumane measure ends. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. Our next story lays out the facts of day 308 in the Ukrainian situation, where the U.N. states that the number of civilians killed could be considerably higher than the 6.8 thousand that is already known. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the Office of the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, Guardian, Ukraine Forum, and CNN. 
The Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, or the OHCHR, on Tuesday released its latest casualty figures for the war in Ukraine. The agency said 6,884 civilians had been confirmed killed, while 10,947 were confirmed injured, the majority of those coming from the Donbass regions of Luhansk and Donetsk. However, the agency warned that the figures are likely far below the real numbers. The organization said it thinks the actual figures are considerably higher, citing the delay in reporting caused by intense conflict, along with the fact that many reports are still pending corroboration. Meanwhile, according to multiple reports, Ukrainian forces are strengthening their numbers near the West Luhansk city of Crimea ahead of a possible offensive. It would be strategically important if recaptured by Ukraine, as the city controls a major role to Lysychansk and Severodonetsk, cities taken by Russian and pro-Russia forces earlier in the year. In neighboring Donetsk, where heavy fighting continues near Bakhmut, Ukrainian officials said three civilians had been injured in Russian attacks on the city in the past day. Pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic, or the DPR, said four civilians were injured in Ukrainian attacks on the region during the same time period. Further Russian attacks also continued to be reported in the regions of Kharkiv and Kherson, with three civilian injuries recorded in each of the regions. The regions of Sumy and Dnipropetrovsk were also attacked without reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Elsewhere, people in India are investigating the death of Pavel Antov, a Russian businessman and politician who reportedly fell from a hotel window in the eastern state of Odisha. His death came two days after a member of his travel party, Vladimir Bidenov, was found unconscious following an apparent heart attack at the same hotel. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. As we look at the first spin, it is a pro-establishment narrative coming from PBS NewsHour. This invasion is an egregious violation of international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet empire, even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts, such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian revolution after an election a coup. This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. And the National Security Archive has crafted a pro-Russia narrative. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. These concerns are legitimate and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukrainian tragedy. And the nerds from Metaculus are chiming in for this story as well. They say there's a 28% chance that Ukraine will have de facto control of at least 90% of the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts by January 1st, 2024. Do you have complete control of your oblasts, Adam? I did, but then my dogs took them and they buried them in my neighbor's yard. So I'm trying to get a city ordinance so that I can go in and retrieve my oblasts from their yard. I heard that PetSmart's got a sale on oblasts. They're discontinuing last year's models. My my PetSmart sold out. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Turning our attention to India as they investigate the death of a Russian politician. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, Finance, Washington Post, BBC News, and UPI. Indian police are investigating the sudden death of Russian politician Pavel Antov a multimillionaire sausage tycoon and critic of the war in Ukraine who died in the eastern state of Odisha. 
On Saturday, Antoff fell from a third-floor window of a luxury hotel in Ryagata City. His abrupt death comes after his friend and Russian lawmaker Vladimir Budinov died of a heart attack on Antoff's 65th birthday two days previously on December 22nd. Authorities have speculated that Antoff was depressed after his friend's death and that he died by suicide. According to Russian consul in Calcutta, they don't see a, quote, criminal element in these tragic events. Antoff founded the Vladimir Standard Meat Processing Plant and netted about $140 million by 2019, making him one of Russia's richest lawmakers and civil servants. A member of Russian President Vladimir Putin's United Russia Party, he also chaired the Committee on Agrarian Policy, Nature Management, and Ecology. In June, despite being a staunch supporter of Putin, Antoff termed Russia's airstrikes on Ukraine an act of terrorism. He later denied having posted the anti-war message on WhatsApp, emphasizing he was a patriot. Several prominent Russian figures have died mysteriously this year. Many of the deceased were involved in the oil and gas industry, including the head of Russia's oil giant Luke Oil, Ravil Maganov, who died in a fall from a Moscow hospital window in September. Thank you for the facts, Eric. Our anti-Russia narrative is provided by The Sun. Several powerful Russians have died violently or under mysterious circumstances since the start of the Russian assault on Ukraine. It's unsurprising, then, that Vladimir Putin, a former lieutenant colonel of the KGB and ex-head of the FSB, is famous for assassinating anyone who steps out of line. Pavel Antov is just the latest in a long list of Putin critics who have paid the price for speaking out against the Kremlin's maniacal leader. A pro-Russian narrative's coming from Economic Times. It's impossible to know if the string of unnatural deaths is merely a coincidence or conspiracy, since many oligarchs met their untimely ends outside Russia. While the circumstances of Pavel Antov's death are still being investigated, let's not forget he was a successful businessman, lawmaker, and philanthropist. His death is a tragic loss for Russia. And the nerds of Metaculus have a prediction on this. They say there's an 18% chance that a coup or regime change will take place in Russia in 2022 or 2023. And that's according to the Metaculus prediction community. Eric, I think as long as they keep their coup on the first or second floor, I think they should be successful. But, you know, don't go on the third floor. That's uh, where things get, things get shady. I don't know. I'm more of a ground floor coup guy. Ground floor coup. That was the name of my high school rock band. Was it? Yeah. Well, I was a part of the Ground Floor Cougars. Oh, the Ground Floor Cougars. Yes. I was the drummer in an all-female band. Uh, And all the women were over 40? They were all like 20 years older than me. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let Eric play some more. Play the drums. Yes. Eric, get get out in front and play. Eric, my strings need to be tuned. Oh, my God. Ethiopian Airlines resume flights to Tigray. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, DW, and Africa. Ethiopian Airlines on Wednesday resumed flights to the Tigray region, as relations between the war-torn region and the Ethiopian federal government began to normalize. This comes as Ethiopian leaders visited the region on Monday after signing a peace agreement in November to end the conflict in Tigray, which lasted two years as humanitarian aid and Ethiopian utilities returned to the region in exchange for disarmament of Tigray's People's Liberation Front, or the TPLF. Ethiopian Airlines has stated that they are truly pleased with the resumption of our flights to Mikale, the regional capital. 
The first flight to the city was fully booked within hours of the announcement. Access to the national power grid was restored to the region of 6 million on December 6th, while the Commercial Bank of Ethiopia, the largest in the country, resumed financial operations in some parts of the region on December 19th. The peace agreement also mandates the withdrawal of foreign forces from Tigray. While Ethiopian allied Eritrean forces are still reported to be present in the area, while Eritrea was not party to the peace agreement, their continued presence poses an obstacle to the ongoing peace process. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. As we look at the spins, the first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Africa Times. The bloody conflict in Tigray is finally coming to an end, as both sides are showing a real commitment to a lasting peace in the region. While Eritrean forces remain a sticking point, each side has indicated that they will be upholding their ends of the bargain. Tigray will decommission their weapons, and Ethiopia will allow aid and utilities to return to the area. The return of Ethiopian airlines is another good-faith showing of trust in the peace process. There is now real promise of an end to this conflict. And the establishment critical narrative is provided by NewsBud. Ethiopia is trying to impose a victor's peace on the people of Tigray. Their lackadaisical attitude towards foreign forces in the region are indicative of this and only increase the risk of an outbreak of violence. Ethiopian Airlines has been accused of violating international law by providing logistical support to the Ethiopian military, and there is no chance of a fair and transparent peace process if Ethiopia does not properly address their misconduct during the war and peace process. And our friends from the Metaculous Prediction community are giving us a nerd narrative saying there's a 51% chance that Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed will experience a significant leadership disruption before 2025. I think this is great news for Ethiopia, Eric. <laughs> and I think as long as the Prime Minister keeps himself on a nice, fair-level diet, he shouldn't have any significant leadership disruptions. I agree, Adam. This is really good news, finally, coming out of that area. If he will frequent those juice bars more often. <laughs> <laughs> Turning our attention back to the United States as a judge denies Arizona governor-elect's call for sanctions against Kerry Lake. And here are the facts as agreed upon by WTHR, Daily Caller, Market Watch, New York Post, Fox News, and Arizona Family. Arizona Judge Peter Thompson, who oversaw the two-day trial of Kerry Lake's lawsuit challenging the results of the state's gubernatorial election, has denied Governor-elect Katie Hobbs' request to impose sanctions against Lake. Thompson ruled that Lake's lawsuit wasn't brought in bad faith. Lake filed the suit this month over ballot printer problems and ballot chain of custody misconduct, which she alleged cost her a victory in the race against Hobbs. However, Judge Peter Thompson ruled that her witnesses lacked knowledge of intentional misconduct. Maricopa County was seeking over $25,000 to cover its own legal fees, while Hobbs, whose 17,000 vote win was secured by the court ruling, was asking for a separate $550,000 in attorney fees from Lake, more than $450,000 of which would go to Democratic elections lawyer Mark Elias's firm. The county's filing stated, quote, enough really is enough, and added that Lake's lawsuit was, quote, brought without any legitimate justification. The county also accused Lake of trying to fundraise off her efforts to overturn the election and of using the court to harass political opponents. 
The desired fees would have covered Hobbs' expenditures after hiring coppersmith Brockelman PLC attorney Andrew Goana, from whom she received the drafting of a motion to dismiss, aid in preparing for the evidentiary hearing, and participation in the two-day evidentiary hearing. Though Hobbs won't receive the roughly $600,000 she wanted to cover legal fees, Judge Thompson did award her just under $34,000 to cover other costs. Meanwhile, Lake's lawyers formally notified Thompson on Tuesday that they will be appealing his dismissal of their case. Eric, thank you for the facts. And with politically motivated stories such as this, we've got a Democratic narrative starting off the spins, and it's brought to us by Bipartisan Report. Lake, like every other Arizona Republican who challenged election results and lost, made baseless claims from the get-go and is now facing the consequences. It's bad enough to sow doubt about election integrity via social media, but making such egregious accusations through the legal system is indefensible. Hopefully the court will side with Hobbs and show election deniers what happens when you lie about results. And a Republican narrative comes from PJ Media. Aside from potential sanctions against Lake, the real news here is that this was a sham trial from the beginning. Despite Lake providing evidence of malfunctioning vote tabulators at a significant portion of majority Republican polling sites, Thompson chalked it up to coincidence. Two days wasn't nearly enough time to thoroughly investigate the matter, but it seems the court had no desire to conduct an effective probe. No jokes about effective probes, Eric. No, no. All my probes are defective anyway. Yeah, well, it's time to get a new obelisk. Damn dogs. We've got news out of the United Kingdom that says 40% of junior doctors plan to quit the National Health Service. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, Yahoo, Standard, Guardian, and Newsbud. According to a new survey, 40% of junior doctors plan to leave the UK's National Health Service, or the NHS, as soon as they can find another role. Pay and poor working conditions were the main reason cited for wanting to quit, said the British Medical Association, or the BMA, who commissioned the research. The BMA said the NHS would not be able to cope if two-fifths of its junior doctor workforce resigned. It urged the government to get back around the table and avoid a strike set to be held by doctors next week. One-third of the 4,500 junior doctors surveyed in England also said they planned to work in another country in the next 12 months. Australia and New Zealand are considered top destinations among those looking to immigrate. The survey comes ahead of an industrial action ballot affecting junior doctors in England, which opens on January 9th. Junior doctors in England have faced some of the steepest cuts to their pay of any public sector worker over the past 15 years, with wages falling for more than 25% in real terms since 2008 and 2009, according to new analysis. The health secretary has made it clear that supporting and retaining the NHS workforce is one of its key priorities, a spokesman said. He continued, saying the resident salary will be increased by up to 8.2% by 2023, and an additional £90 million will be invested to offer the most experienced junior doctors higher pay, higher bonuses for those who work most weekends, and higher pay for night shifts. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Let's take a look at the spins. A left narrative is the first one, and it's courtesy of the Social Review. 
Not only have nurses and frontline workers borne the brunt of the pandemic, they now face a government trying to nickel and dime them out of a necessary and well-deserved pay increase, all while dealing with record high inflation and a buckling health care system. Public sector wages have stagnated profoundly under conservative governance. The unacceptable exploitation of essential workers needs to stop. And you can't have a left narrative without a right narrative. And this one is provided by Telegraph. Unions must face the fact that every day they stay on the picket line puts the lives of countless Britons at risk. The government is scrambling to find solutions to the economic crisis sparked by COVID and inflation, as well as the market destabilization induced by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The unions are simply not playing fair by ignoring the reality of current economic circumstances. This is a safety issue. In our next story, the United Nations calls for Taliban to reverse restrictions on women. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Axios, BBC News and Guardian. The UN Security Council on Tuesday condemned the ruling, Taliban's recent laws targeting Afghan women, calling for the full, equal and meaningful participation of women and girls in Afghanistan. This comes as the body denounced the Taliban for banning women from attending universities and working for local and international non-governmental organizations, adding that the latter order would impact aid operations in the country. Earlier this month, the UN Humanitarian Office warned that a record 28.3 million Afghans, over two-thirds of its population, will need humanitarian and other assistance in 2023 as the country has faced a humanitarian crisis since the Taliban took over last year. At least five top NGOs suspended their work in Afghanistan following the ban on female humanitarian workers, including Care International, the Norwegian Refugee Council, and Save the Children, which said it can't continue its work without our female staff. The UNSC also argued that these restrictions are at odds with commitments made by the Taliban to the Afghan people as well as to the international community which has made women's rights a condition in negotiations with the government over restoring aid. The Taliban has implemented several policies targeting women in the nation since regaining government control last year, with secondary schools being closed in most provinces and women being prevented from entering parks and gyms, among other public places. Thank you, Eric. Our pro-establishment narrative spin is provided by Guardian. A rare unanimous condemnation by the USNC may be adequate to demonstrate that the Taliban has gone too far in its crackdown on women's rights, amounting to unjustifiable human right violations against the Afghan people, as it silences and excludes half of its population. A move that not only shows human rights and domestic economic progress, but hinders humanitarian efforts in the country. And the establishment critical narrative is coming from Bakhtar News Agency. The suspension of women's employment in foreign NGOs is a matter of Afghanistan's internal affairs that has been decided by its own leaders, so foreign powers should refrain from meddling in it. And given that Afghanistan is a sovereign state, all those institutions willing to operate within the country must comply with its rules and regulations instead of making threats. And there's a nerd narrative that states there's a 25% chance that the U.S. will recognize the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan before 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Spain has announced a $10 billion aid package amid inflation. 
And here are the facts as agreed upon by Market Screener, Reuters, Archive, and Al Jazeera. On Tuesday, Spain's center-left government, led by Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, announced a new 10 billion euro or 10.65 billion dollar package to counter inflation in 2023, bringing the total government-funded aid to 45 billion euro since 2022. Like other European countries, Spain has been grappling with a cost-of-living crisis exacerbated by the impact of the war in Ukraine on energy prices. The new package will see the extension of tax cuts for energy bills into the first half of next year. It also includes a one-off bonus of €200 for about 4.2 million households with annual incomes up to €25,000, an increase of pensions by 8.5%, the freezing of existing rental contracts for a half a year, and the extension of free travel in local and regional transport until the end of next year. Spain's efforts have seen some success, with inflation slowing to 6.7% in November from the prior year, largely due to a sharp fall in electricity prices, which decreased by 22.4%. However, food prices have continued to hit Spaniards' wallets, climbing 15% during October and November above the previous year. To address food inflation, the government said it would cut the value-added tax, or VAT, on essential foods, such as bread, cheese, and milk, to 0% from 4%. However, Sanchez announced the discount on the price of gasoline for all consumers, except the haulage division, would be discontinued. According to Sanchez, the aid provided so far has helped Spain record strong economic growth during 2022, which he put at more than 5% greater than the government's previous forecast of 4.4%. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. And the establishment critical narrative is our first spin coming from ASPI strategist. The EU's energy relationship with Russia is at the center of its economic struggles, and leaders have been slow to acknowledge this. European economies are on the brink of recession, and skyrocketing gas prices as a result of reckless Western sanctions will likely be the breaking point. Aid packages such as Spain's latest one is merely a band-aid to cover the gaping hole that is Europe's energy crisis. And Associated Press has provided a pro-establishment narrative. Europe is indeed facing an energy crisis, an unavoidable reality as Putin uses oil to bully his way through the war. While it's impossible to avoid the economic repercussions of this, aid packages will go a long way to alleviating the pain. The latest plan will provide much-needed relief for thousands of Spaniards. Turning our attention to Hong Kong as they are to drop nearly all COVID restrictions. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, DW, South China Morning Post, and Financial Times. This week, Hong Kong will continue relaxing nearly all of the COVID restrictions that currently remain in place. This move comes on the heels of mainland China abandoning its zero-COVID policy. On Wednesday, John Lee, the city's leader, announced that Hong Kong would be dropping the mandatory PCR testing requirement for international arrivals. The restriction went into effect in 2020 and will be dropped from Thursday. The special administrative region will also resume cross-border travel with the mainland with few restrictions beginning on January 10th. Residents traveling on business or to see family will be given priority. 
While most of the restrictions will be dropped, wearing masks will remain a requirement. Lee said, quote, we have always been preparing ourselves for normalization. I have to do it progressively, orderly, and under control, so we can assess the risk and go on. He further said the decision was made based on 2.5 million people having been infected and the vaccination rate reaching 94%. Throughout the pandemic, Hong Kong has imposed some of the world's strictest restrictions, with mandatory quarantines of up to three weeks that included separating parents from children. With the latest announcement, residents exposed to the virus will no longer be required to isolate in their homes or quarantine at government sites. Hong Kong is following in the footsteps of the mainland, which dropped restrictions following the protests and civil unrest of its residents over the largely criticized zero-COVID policy. Following the abandonment of the strict strategy, the mainland has experienced a significant surge in infections and deaths. Thank you for the facts on that story, Eric. We have a couple of narrative spins on this. Our narrative A spin is provided by Asian Investor. Hong Kong should turn its focus to its financial future. Many deals that were on the table before the pandemic have been halted while waiting for the reopening. Investors may remain leery at first, but it's up to Hong Kong and the mainland to plan properly and prudently for a successful and fruitful reopening. Narrative B is coming from CNN. COVID restrictions weren't the only crackdown that took place in Hong Kong throughout the pandemic. Other issues continued to brew amid Beijing's new national security law and subsequent authoritarian crackdown. Hong Kong may claim order has been restored, but international tensions have increased, which could prove troublesome for a city trying to rebound from COVID. Our final story turns to the attention of sports, where Djokovic has returned to Australia after his deportation. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, and The Atlantic. Tennis star Novak Djokovic is back in Australia, nearly a year after he was detained and deported over his COVID vaccination status. At the time, the Serbian had been world number one and was due to defend his Australian Open crown. However, after arriving in Melbourne on January 5th, he was detained by the Australian border force and was required to stay at an immigration hotel after it was discovered he hadn't been vaccinated. Djokovic had said he thought he could enter the country after two independent panels associated with Tennis Australia and the Victorian state government had granted him an exemption on the grounds that he'd been infected with COVID shortly before. However, following a legal fight, Djokovic was reported after former immigration minister Alex Hawke found he posed a risk to public health and order because, as a celebrity sportsman who had previously expressed opposition to compelled vaccination, he could be seen as an icon for those with similar views. The deportation resulted in an automatic three-year ban on him returning, a decision that was overturned by Australian authorities last month. At the time, Djokovic said, The Australian Open has been my most successful Grand Slams. I made some of the best memories there. Of course I want to go back there. I want to play tennis. Do what I do best. Hopefully have a great Australian summer. The 35-year-old has won the tournament a total of nine times, the most by any player, and he has won a total of 21 Grand Slams, one behind rival Rafael Nadal. Before competing in the Australian Open, set to commence on January 16th, Djokovic will play in the Adelaide International beginning on Sunday. 
Thank you for the facts, Adam. Narrative A is coming from Tennis365.com. Novak Djokovic is one of the greatest tennis players of all time and has won the Australian Open a record number of times. The tournament and title would carry less weight if he's not there to compete. He should never have been treated as a pariah by the Australian government. Narrative B is provided by Atlantic. At the time, Djokovic was treated appropriately by the Australian government given the circumstances and his actions. Times are different now, but no one should feel sorry about the past. And a narrative C is coming from The Guardian. After a series of blunders, natural disasters, and a once-in-a-century pandemic, the last three Australian Opens have been overshadowed by events off the tennis court. With Djokovic's return, hopefully this year it's the tennis that'll do the talking. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, December 29th, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.